Hello again, everyone. Welcome. So excited to jump into a new chapter. I feel like we've been in John chapter 17 for like seven weeks. That's because we were. Seven weeks in John chapter 17. So today we're going to jump into uh, John 18. So if you you can turn to your Bibles, and I believe it's going to be up on the screen. We're going to take a good chunk. It's only 10 verses, but they're, they're meaty. And so what I'm going to do is <clears throat> I may explain as we go. Um, so that way, uh, as we jump into uh, our topic, you can reflect back on these things and hopefully everything will connect. So John chapter 18, again, Jesus's uh, last few hours on earth. He just got done talking to his disciples in his final discourse, which was four chapters long. Um, the last chapter was the high priestly prayer that Jesus uh, prayed to the Father on behalf of his disciples. That is done, <clears throat> and just in 18 verse 1, as it says, when Jesus had spoken these words, meaning the prayer, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron. Now remember that phrase, ravine of the Kidron, because we're going to come back to that later. <clears throat> and that means uh, the ravine of the winter or the winter stream. And that flowed right into the garden of Gethsemane. And so there was a garden in which he and his disciples entered. Now, Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. <clears throat> Excuse me. Now, the garden wasn't there wasn't like um, a bunch of uh, like public, necessarily public gardens on the Mount of Olives. Usually wealthy people own them um, and they would maintain these gardens. So uh, we're sort of, assumption here is that Jesus had some sort of access, had some sort of key. He used to go there on a regular basis with his disciples to pray. I told you I was going to explain this as we go so you could have some context. And so Judas, being one of his disciples, knew he was going to betray him. He knew where he would be. So verse three, Judas, then having received the Roman cohort and the officers from the chief priests of the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. We're going to talk about some of the differences between John's description of this scene and the other writers. But one of them here is that John mentions this Roman cohort. We don't see that anywhere else. So Roman cohort could be about 6,000 soldiers Um, The word also could be used to be around 1,000 or even 100 soldiers. So we're not quite too sure exactly how many, but we know that there were a lot. So verse 4, Jesus, knowing all the things that were coming upon him, he went forth when they came to him and he said, whom do you seek? Remember, John used this phrase once before. In the very beginning in chapter one, when the disciples were following him, remember, he turns around to to Peter and Andrew. Um, I'm sorry, Andrew. And he says, uh, and um, who else was it? Nathaniel, whom do you seek? And they started, they were John's disciples and they started following Jesus. Now we see the flip side of that. Whom do you seek? Well, it's his betrayer. They answered him and said, Jesus, the Nazarene. And he said to them, I am. The word he is added by the translators. John didn't write the word he, but the translators did so we would understand what he's talking about. We know that John mentions the I am statements very frequently. And so the I am is the Elohim that that John is trying for us to identify Jesus with as God. 
And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing there with him. In verse 6, so when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Therefore, again, he asked them, who do you seek? Now, when he says they drew back, that, that word could also be translated, take a few steps back. So the picture here could be either maybe some cosmic humor by God saying, well, I am he and them taking steps, they trip and then they fall back. But what we do know is that the power, that there was power that emanated out of here that caused them to step back and then ultimately fall back to the ground. Therefore, again, he asked them, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene, verse eight, Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way to fulfill the word which he spoke. Um, Those of whom you've given me, I have lost none. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. And we know from Luke's account that Jesus immediately healed that ear. And he told him to put the sword away, which he does here. But we're going to stop right there at verse 10. So I wanted to sort of give you that overview, give you the layout so you can see where we're at right now. But really the main character in this passage, the main focus in this passage is Judas and betrayal. Judas and betrayal. And it's happening, as we see, in a garden. Now, I don't know about you, but when when I look at an old picture of myself, I I found myself looking at an old picture that I had found from about 15 years ago. It was a picture of our entire family at Christmas. Now, if you're like me, the first thing you do when you look at a picture is you find yourself in the picture, right? Where am I? How do I look? What did I look like? The problem with this Christmas picture from 15 years ago was that I didn't find myself at first. At first glance, I saw someone who looked a little bit like me, and I thought to myself, I don't recognize this guy. Who's this charming, youthful wee lad in this picture standing next to my wife? And in all seriousness, obviously, it was me. Um, But I was 15 years younger, about 20 pounds lighter, much better shape, lots of the bags and the wrinkles, they hadn't fully emerged yet. But the interesting thing is when I first saw that picture, when I first had looked at that picture, I remember 15 years ago, I saw it and I said, I I look terrible in this picture. Anybody ever say that when you see your picture? Oh, I look terrible. I didn't like the photo back then, but when I was looking at it now, 15 years later, I really thought I looked great. This guy didn't even identify myself. I don't know about you, but I would trade the effects of age for sure, if I could. I'm sure if I see a recent photo of taken now, but 10 years later, for 10 years from now, my perception will probably be the same. Oh man, I look terrible. 10 years from now, I'll look back and go, wow, I looked good. I looked great back then, being 30 pounds overweight and everything else or whatever the case may be. You see, when the older man meets a younger version of himself, like this in an older photograph, he can easily see the change. But what about spiritually? And here's the question I have for you. Can you see the difference when you look back to your old man spiritually? You look back at your previous self before you knew the Lord. 
you saw that picture, put that picture in your mind right now and compare it to the person right now, with that, the, the present version of you. <clears throat> in our passage today, John isn't necessarily comparing an unconverted younger self to a future converted self, but he does create a similar comparison and he sets the stage for something that we have not yet seen in his gospel, really even in the scriptures. He doesn't show us a younger self versus the newer self scenario. Instead, he is showing us the new man, capital N, capital M, standing face to face with the old man, capital O, capital M, or even better, the old Adam, the betrayers, and who are they? Judas, the soldiers, the chief priests, the rulers, the Jews, the religious people, those representing that old Adam, the betrayers, and the new Adam, who the scripture calls the second Adam, and that is Jesus Christ. And they're all standing in a very unique place that John wants us to really know and pay attention to, as we'll see. They're standing in a place where this whole thing began, in the garden. So although the physical difference between the new Adam and the old Adam may not be as visible, there's a huge spiritual difference when you compare both of these people, symbolically, figuratively, and obviously even literally. So what is John trying to communicate here? Why is he the only gospel writer that communicates the betrayal of Jesus in such a way other than the other writers did? Remember, we have four gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, and Luke, which are called the synoptic gospels because they're pretty much the same. And then we have the gospel of John, which is really completely different than the other three. It tells the story of Jesus's life in a much different light but yet not inconsistent with the other three. <clears throat> so it's very interesting what he's communicating with the betrayal of this, or, or, or with the concept of betrayal in here and how he does it. But I think what he's trying to show us, and this is what I'm going to try to hope to bring out for us today, is what does the betrayal in this text tell us about where Jesus is headed in just a few hours? Where is that? the cross. That's where he is about to go. So in classic style, John, he paints us a vivid picture in this tiny passage of betrayal, but he uses and he draws from the entire biblical narrative, the whole entire story from the beginning until the end of the Bible of redemption. So he ties in, and he's doing this very purposely and deliberately, as we're going to see, the whole entire biblical narrative starting back in the garden and bringing it to this point in the garden. And he's trying to show us and paint us this picture of redemption. So we'll just cover the first 10 verses today of chapter 18, but we will be laying a foundation today for this betrayal as it launches us into the story of the cross. So what we're going to look at today is betrayal in the garden and how does that relate 
And how does that relate to us? But most importantly, why is John telling it in this specific way? So I mentioned the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And I mentioned those three compared to John's account. What are some of the differences? I want you guys to be able to know that so that way you can see where we're going and how John contrasts it so much so he could have easily just copied and sort of told the same sort of story, but he did it in a lot different way. See, John, first of all, doesn't mention the word Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane. He doesn't mention the Mount of Olives, but rather he mentions the ravine called Kidron which is very pertinent, which we're going to talk about. The Synoptic Gospels, they mention Jesus' grieving and his distress, the distress that came over him, knowing what was about to happen. We get a picture of that, so much so that one of the writers says that Jesus actually sweat blood because of how he knew in his humanness, as, as well as his deity, his humanness knew that he was going to have to drink a cup And that cup would not be able to pass him for God's will to be done. The synoptics, they mentioned the the, the disciples sleeping. They they mentioned Judas uh, coming to to Jesus and kissing him and saying, uh, Rabbi, and he gives him a kiss. And Jesus says, you're betraying me with a kiss. They mentioned Jesus's ability to call on 12 legions of angels. So a legion of angels is about 6,000. So you multiply that times 12. They mention an angel coming to minister to Jesus. And they also mention the fleeing of his disciples. But you see, John shows us a more victorious, more, hey, I'm ready to do this, more optimistic, victorious version, although the synoptics were very victorious as well. John, he includes the Romans, the Jewish leaders, Judas, and the disciples. But John very particularly mentions more detail about the garden, the ravine, the brook of the Kidron. Now we read a little bit about, uh, Chris read some of the, I believe read this in, in our Old Testament reading. But again, John is always pointing back to Genesis, John is writing a new Genesis. We've established that throughout all of our teaching. John starts out just like Genesis starts out. In the beginning, John says the same thing. But in Genesis 2, 8 to 14, the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden. And there he placed the man whom he had formed. And he says in verse 10, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and then it became divided. Now, who wrote the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible? John. We read in Revelation 21, 1 to 5, John said that, he goes, he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from where? The throne of God and of the Lamb, and coming down the middle of the street where either side had the river I'm sorry, either side had the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. So John has this theme that he is putting in, obviously, in Revelation. He's calling back to Genesis. 
And then here in his description of the beginning of the passion of Christ, the beginning of the crucifixion, he's showing us that Jesus, unlike all the other writers, has, caught, has crossed into this ravine, this little tiny stream, back into the garden that John is bringing us full circle to. Now, John puts Judas and the garden as the main character of the scene, but Judas is more of the focus. But the question lies is, how does John bring things, or why does he bring things full circle to the garden? And why is Judas uh, and the garden the focus? Well, here's my, what I propose to you here, and then we'll get to see how this connects to our life and what we need to do about it. Well, first we have Judas, who was what? One of the 12. He was friends with Jesus. He was the betrayer. He was a deceiver. He was one who tried to show Jesus, thinking maybe, we don't know Judas's motive, Maybe his, some people say, well, his motive was to try to push the kingdom forward because Jesus was slowing down too much. When is he going to take the throne? When is he going to conquer Rome? When is he going to get the Jewish, legalistic Jewish people out of it? And when is he going to go sit on the throne? I'm sick and tired of this. He's giving you know, young women like uh, alabaster, uh, big giant jars of oil that's expensive. They're pouring it all over. I mean, what's happening here? I'm going to make this thing happen. So let me go to the chief priests. I'll put Jesus in a situation where he'll have to show himself as king. Some people think that. The scripture is very, very specific on telling us that Judas was who Judas was. He was a betrayer. The scriptures do not want us to try to juggle around all these hypothetical things. The scripture speaks of Judas as the one who betrayed Jesus. Look at how many times John mentions it. Verse two. Now Judas also, who was betraying him. We also see it again. We don't need to hear it again, John. No, I want to tell you. Verse five. And Judas, who was also betraying him, was standing by him. The betrayer. He was a betrayer. And I believe he's the betrayer only because John wants him and wants us to know what he's trying to show us here in this garden scene with Judas. We remember when he's bringing us back to the Genesis garden. Who was the deceiver in the Genesis garden? Satan himself. Satan comes in form of a serpent. Now, whether you believe that's literal, not literal, allegorical, whatever the case may be, put that aside for now. But he represents Satan in the garden. And he betrayed not only God by, by luring and enticing the woman, but he also betrayed mankind as well. And this is exactly what Judas is doing here. He is trying to destroy God's plan in the garden. Judas also represents those that are part of this whole plan and this whole plot, the Jews. Judas, his name is Judah. That's what it was. And he was in alignment with the chief priests and the rulers to betray the Son of God. Obviously, Judas also represents Adam and Eve, mankind, in the garden, saying, yes, 
We don't have to listen to God. He'll never find out. Plus, if we eat of the fruit of the garden, you heard what the serpent said, we'll be able to be like God. We'll be able to be like God. And that's what Satan was his downfall. He says, wow, I'm going to rise up. I could, you know, God, I could do this job just as good. And I'm sure mankind had those same temptations in his pureness. Same thoughts. Why are we listening? Why, why, what if we did eat of that fruit? And then here comes Satan. Now we know that before Judas brought the people here, who entered into him? Satan. See, God wants us to know that Judas was an evil betrayer. He doesn't want us to rationalize his actions. He doesn't want us to say, oh, hypothetically, he could have did this or hypothetically, he could have done that. God wants us to know that this man was inhabited by Satan and he was a betrayer and he betrayed God in the garden as it originally happened. Now, what we see more than anything here, we see Judas and all he represents as that old man and we see God in Jesus of everything that he represents fully one million percent love, selfless, ready to rectify that old man. So we have the new Adam and the old Adam in the same place it began in the garden. The ultimate face off in the evening time. So what does John want us to learn as a result of this? He does he want us to just think he was a really cool writer and he was really, you know, smart to weave all this stuff in and parallels and all that other stuff. No, I don't believe he, I believe that the Holy Spirit inspired him, but I do believe that Jesus was, or John was obsessed with Jesus's victory. He was obsessed with the fact that, that Jesus came to make everything right that was made wrong by sin. We saw that through the whole entire gospel. But I believe he wants us to know a few things as well, very specifically as it relates to our walk with the Lord. First, and this may be hard, to st- we, we, it's, we have a hard time to really rationalize this because every man loves to, com- to, to proclaim his own goodness. That's what we say. We all do the same thing. We all look for how good we really are. We can't really see the depths of our sin because we're constantly comparing ourselves with people that are worse than us. That's just how, how we live. We say, oh, how could that person do that? Wow, you know, they must really be crazy and wacky and had a really bad upbringing and they must have been in a really bad situation. No, it's sin. Yes, you can factor in all the social, sociological aspects. I'm not taking that away. But ultimately, sin is what causes it. So he wants us to see our connection to this betrayal and our involvement in this betrayal but most important, he wants us to come back. Now listen, betrayal, what is it? It's to give into the hands of another treacherously. It's to give into the hands of another. I am going to give, I am going to betray my friendship by putting the loyalty that you thought that I had, the trust that you have in me, I'm gonna break that trust by betraying you, by putting the information that you gave me into the hands of another. Just an example. Like Adam, we betrayed God 
by giving his creation and the authority that we have as people made in the image of God and our lives, our whole entire lives, we've handed all that over to Satan. That's what we've done in our sin. That's what the Bible says. But the beautiful thing about this is that Jesus, the new Adam, who's being betrayed, just recently had sat down with his betrayer, knowing that, his, that this man, because he was about, he goes, who is it, Jesus? And he dipped the sop and passed it to him. Jesus always knew that Judas was going to betray him. But just a few hours earlier, he had this man's feet out, all exposed, nasty feet, and he was watching knowing that he was going to betray him. That's who we have as the new Adam. That's the picture of, the, of Jesus Christ, of the, of the character of God in the garden. And then we have standing next to him, the old Adam, the, the picture of the old Adam, the betrayer. Now, was, was Judas the only one that betrayed Jesus? No. Who betrayed Jesus? Peter. And, and we see in the other Gospels that what? They all fleed. They all ran. Peter and Judas. You see, this chapter is about two types of betrayal. Do you see what John did here? He showed us the betrayal of, G, of Judas in, in chapter 18 in the beginning. But then in verse 25 of this chapter, which we'll get to in a few weeks, we see Peter betraying Jesus as well. You see, what was the difference between both of those two? You could say, well, Judas acknowledged his sin. Peter acknowledged his sin. Judas acknowledged his sin. Judas was a, I mean, he got an Oscar, I would say, for that performance. He convinced everybody. If you're first reading this, the Gospels and you see Judas's response to his betrayal, you would say, wow, he's... He's doing the right thing. He cried. He wept. He went and gave the money back. He said, I betrayed innocent blood. And Peter, too, he, 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 he denied Jesus three times. He looked at Jesus. Jesus looked at him. He started to weep. They both betrayed him. But what's the only difference is that Judas went and hung himself. Peter came back and received the Lord's forgiveness. You see, we're all betrayers of Christ by nature. We've betrayed the God that knitted us together. We've betrayed the God that thought us into existence. You were a thought in God's mind at one point. Well, you were always, he's infinite. But that thought could have just been, but God thought you into existence. He brought you into existence. He created you. He orchestrated your life. And you have betrayed him. And so have I. But the difference is that God wants us, we are standing in that garden. We're either standing in that garden as the new self or we're standing in the new renewed garden that God is rebuilding or we're standing figuratively still in the old garden as the old man, rebelling against God, betraying him. We, God wants us, John wants us to be like a Peter and acknowledge our betrayal and come to Christ with it. 
Now that's number one. The number two thing is he wants us to see the life cycle of betrayal. The life cycle of betrayal. You see, betrayal begins in the heart. And it typically comes out through justifying the betrayal. Betrayal begins in the heart and betrayal comes out through the justifying of betrayal. We don't typically just betray point blank and just say, yep, I'm betraying you. That's it. I'm done. Or I'm going to go betray that person. It usually starts with a seed in the heart. And it usually comes out through thinking what you're doing can probably work out for good. I'm going to, you know what, I know this seems like a betrayal, but it's for your good. You know, the old, it's you, it's, it's me and it's not you type of thing. You know, it's me, it's not you. It's a, it, you know, I know I betrayed you, but it was for your good because down the road this was going to happen anyway and I wanted to save you the pain and, and everything else. See, our justification in our sin starts to work in our mind and we start to come up with reasons. And that's what Judas did. That's what the Jews did. That's what the Romans did. All the ones standing in the garden and the disciples too. The disciples were like, yeah, well, Jesus did say we were going to flee from him tonight. You know, we don't want to go against his word. So let's get out of here. You know, one of them was stripped, had a coat, uh, had a cover on and the, you know, he was stripped and he fled away naked. What did the Jews say? The chief priest said, you know what? It's better for one man to die for for the people than the whole country perish. Yeah, that's good. Let's justify that. Let's justify this betrayal of our God, of Messiah. Even though the scriptures are pointing to it, who it is, you're going to hang on to this little tiny itty bitty justification. We have all this information here to tell. No, but we're going to hang on to this little tiny itty bitty justification because it is better for people, for one person to die than the whole country to perish. That was a prophecy, actually. But their motive, that betrayal, is where it was, that's where it got labeled betrayal in the heart. And so we see the Jews, we see, well, you may be saying, well, what about the Romans? How did they be, betray? Well, you see, the Romans, they, what, what did they do? Remember we talked about there was a little Roman camp just above Jerusalem, where just above the temple, about, so there was this big Roman battalion that would sit up there, and they would be able to look down onto the Temple Mount. So if, if Pilate was to say, hey, listen, we're, we have an uprising, they were able to get there in minutes. Now, this is Passover time. There's millions of Jewish people. Every single Passover year, there was always problems. There was always uprisings. There was always zealots that thought they were going to turn around and do stuff. So Rome was on guard. And so I believe that's why we, it's very believable that there was a cohort of, of a Roman soldier when they said, hey, it's that guy causing miracles. It's the chief priests are angry. All right, just we don't want any problems tonight. Go and send everybody down there. So the Romans were saying, hey, we just got to keep the peace. Let's kill this guy. Let's set the example that if anyone wants to mess around, especially during Passover and start throwing the word king around, you are going to go to the cross. You see, the Jews, the Romans, and of course, Judas himself, what did he say? I betrayed innocent blood. See, Judas justified it too. 
Maybe Judas, when he said that, meant, you know what? I thought Jesus was the Messiah, or acting like it at least, with all these miracles. And I thought it was going to be better for my people. Or I thought it was going to be better for the kingdom. It was going to be ushered in. Whatever he used, I don't know, but it was a justification. Guaranteed. There is a philosophical idea called utilitarianism. And now utilitarianism is uh, the benefit of the majority. You say, well, this is what we do when we typically justify. It's for the greater good. So it must be okay. It's for the greatest happiness of everybody. It's going to benefit the majority. And we may say, well, yeah, Pat, isn't that what democracy is? And I say, no, it's not. You see, a democracy, well, technically it is, but it's not the democracy we have in our country. Why we have such a great democracy, it's because it's covered with a rule of law called a republic, called a declaration of independence and all the different uh, amendments and, and the Constitution and all that stuff. We have all that, and within that, how come when I start talking about all this stuff, you guys all get all squirmy? I'm not going anywhere with this. Don't worry. I am, but not where you th- I'm not going anywhere bad. So listen. So you got, the, you got this rule of law around this democracy, which is good. Because that way, if we get together and we say, hey, the majority thinks that we should start to consume each other's flesh. Uh, we all think that's a good idea. You could say, well, that's a democracy, okay, but that doesn't sound really good, like it would be obedient to God's law. And it wouldn't. So the law would say, no, that's outside of the realm of the democracy. The democracy has to be held within a rule of law for it to be effective. So this utilitarian greater good is what I believe each of these groups of people that we mentioned were starting, which is what caused them down the road of betrayal. And so what we must get out of this is that the greater good is, oh, it's good. Oh, yeah, greater good is fine as long as it's in its smallest detail consistent with the word of God. In the smallest sense, God wants us to obey, even if it doesn't seem like it would be the best. See, because the utilitarian greater good philosophy or best happiness for everyone fails. Because I could say right now, I am going to give each of you $1,000 cash today because I think that it's going to be for the greater good of all of you. And you all may say, yeah, that, that is for our greater good. But maybe two or three of you will use it for buying something that you're not supposed to buy. Or maybe you'll go purchase purchase something that will cause many lives to be taken because of it. See, there's no way to determine the greater good unless you know have all knowledge of everything, of every future consequence, of every future option of that action. It doesn't work. But the word of God endures forever. We stand upon the word of God. And these guys did not want to do that. They wanted to justify. And it led to the betrayal of God. So John also finally wants us to see God's amazing, sovereign, incomprehensible, adjective, 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 wisdom in this betrayal. 
God knew again from the beginning that this was going to be part of the redemption of his redemptive plan. We see Zechariah 11, 12 and 13. I'll repeat it again. Zechariah chapter 11, verses 12 and 13, which talks about 30 shekels of silver being paid for a betrayal. Look at, I'm not going to read the whole scripture. Psalm 41.9, even my close friend in whom I've trusted who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. This is when they talk about in the scriptures that this, Jesus said the scripture had to be fulfilled. God wanted the scripture to be fulfilled and God wanted us to know that it was going to be a betrayer that was going to give Jesus over to be crucified. And that betrayer was going to be a man. He was going to be a Jewish guy. And he was going to bring the Romans, the world leaders. And of course, God's people were there as well, too, who were part of it as we spoke. But you see that this is all meeting again. This picture of all this is right in the garden, as God said. Now, in order for the battle to be won and to even begin, we have to understand that God's wisdom here, again, it's, it's not just an it's. It, it has a, a bigger purpose. But he's putting us in the midst of this garden battle and each one of us has to make a choice. Each one of us has to look at themselves and see, do I look, am I looking at the old betrayer? First of all, you have to admit that you've betrayed God in your sin. And you have to ask yourself right now, am I looking at the old betrayer Or am I looking at the new man? Has the new man met the old? See, your old man met your new man at one point before, hopefully. And that's when you were converted. And you said, what happened to me? Why don't I like the things that I used to like? And why do I like these things that I never used to like? Why do I like reading about God? Why do I like saying the name Jesus? Why do I like praying now? Why, don't, why does it bother me so bad when I sin? It never bothered me before. You see, that's when the old man met the new man. But then they should have left that space. And that old man is gone. Crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's the new man. And now again, the garden, because it was closed off, In the old, it is now opened up in the new. And consequently, Jesus, when he rises from the dead, who does Mary suppose that he is? The gardener. He is, in a sense, that new gardener planting a new creation, planting a new life for each person that believes in him. So we're all still in the garden, but we now have a new self, a new life. The betrayal is gone. We come to Christ and now we can tend that garden, which is your, which is your, your ministry, whatever that is, your life, your education, your job, obeying your parents, preaching the gospel, sharing the gospel, reading the Bible, doing everything God has called you to do, knowing you are building towards that future perfect garden that John even writes about in the book of Revelation that we have already spoke of. So 
I think another reason that I believe John was the only gospel writer to mention the Brook Kidron and the ravine is because of the, the unique time that it was, Passover season. <clears throat> there if on the Temple Mount, which Jesus, as we had talked about before, when he, he had probably walked right by the temple, right over to the brook, crossing it over, going into um, the Mount of Olives, into the Garden of Gethsemane. So as they passed this, they saw the sacrifices that were happening. It's interesting fact here. Some 30 years later, the Roman government sought to take a census. They wanted to count the people in Jerusalem. The Jews were opposed to the census because of the, ever since the time of David took a, a, a census and uh, got punished for it, they never did that. They wouldn't ever count people. They would do it in a unique way. They would, they would count and they would say, not one, not two, not three, not four, not five. That's how, that's how crazy they would get to, to, to try to obey the law, but not obey the law. But they would do that. They would never count the people. So what, they would, what the Romans did in order to just bypass the aggravation of going to the Jewish people to get the count, they would just go to the temple and they would just count how many Passover lambs were there. Because each family, the Jewish law required that you had to have at least 10 people to eat the Passover lamb. So they would take the, the, the count of all these Passover lambs and they would see how many. According to, to Josephus, there were 256,000 lambs that were killed for this Passover feast. And that indicates the number of people in Jerusalem, about two and a half million people were gathered for the Passover during this time. But here's the unique thing. And now this is what every reader would know. When you mention the brook Kidron and you mention the ravine at this time of the year at Passover, immediately they would think of the Passover lambs that were being sacrificed these millions and millions of lambs that would lay over there on Passover Eve, the beginning of Passover. And they used to have this little funnel of where the blood would go down and would flow, guess right where, right into the brook Kidron. And it would go right into the garden of where Jesus was at. So I can't help but think, as Jesus was standing there walking through with all the wisdom and knowledge and of everything in, in creation, stepping over this ravine or this little brook coming down, filled with blood mixed with water, a phrase that John also uses when Jesus' side is pierced. He said, out of it came blood and water, and I am the witness of that. The reason he did that was because that would medically be indicative of a death which we'll get to more when we get to that scripture, but the blood would mingle with the brook and it would be this bloody looking water flowing down into the stream. Now, Jesus would have saw it, but I believe John wants us to see it and not miss the point that the blood of this main pass, the blood of the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, that blood must flow into the garden, into every part of the, everyone. When we said we're standing in the old man and the new man, this is what must flow and must be recognized in order for that conversion, that change to take place. And he wants us to know that the only hope that we have 
The only way that we can defeat the sin, the serpent, and the betrayal in all of our hearts is to recognize and acknowledge that our only hope is the blood of the Lamb. And the blood of the Lamb is shorthand for saying the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, how do we appropriate the blood of Jesus Christ? We have to know what the blood of Jesus Christ actually did. We talked about this a little bit earlier in Sunday school. But the blood of Jesus Christ, the holy blood, the holy righteous blood of Jesus Christ is the only blood that could take away the justice and wrath of a holy, righteous God. And again, it had to be God's justice. God's the one that cursed. God's the one that caused all the sin. God, not, he didn't, God didn't sin, but the whole reason we needed a savior is because of God's justice. If God's not just and he's just an eye-winking God, don't worry about it. Give me grace, give me grace. It's all my sons ever said to me. Dad, please give me grace, give me grace, give me grace, give me grace. And I do, but if I, but the, the reason I do is based upon the love that is established. You see, God can't give us grace until we have that love relationship with him. And that love relationship can only be initiated by him. And it can only be validated by him when that blood, that blood flows into our, into our hearts figuratively. We have to acknowledge the value and the purpose of the death of the Son of God. Now that's big, but what God wants you to do is narrow it down now. and He wants you to say, this was for me. This blood was spilled for me. Can you receive that? That the blood of the holy, righteous God that created you is the only thing that can save you. And so when you acknowledge that and you acknowledge the blood of Jesus Christ, the second thing you must acknowledge is that blood was poured out, but also Jesus is alive. He rose from the dead. He is standing more alive and more real than you and I right now. He's realer than the flesh on your skin. And there will be a day and time when you will see that. You will face him and he will ask you that on that day, He's not going to say, why should I let you into heaven? He's not going to say all those other things I don't believe. He's either going to say, hello, Jonathan, and your name, or he's going to say, who are you? You must know him. You must know him. And that only comes through the blood. And it only comes to admitting you are. I am. We are these betrayers in the garden. So we should do that right now. Let's just pray and let's just ask the Lord to make us right if we're not right, to get our hearts right. Lord, we do. We, we ask that, you, that we would truly understand the magnitude of what the blood of your son really means. And how, Father, that this scene in the garden is such a picture of each one of our lives right now and even then. I pray, Lord, that you would forgive us. If there's anyone here that needs forgiveness for the first time, that you would forgive them. Anyone watching right now would, would receive your free offer of grace and forgiveness, Lord. Praise you for that. And Lord, that you would take that person and you would fill them with your spirit and use them and make them into the human that you created them to be. And Lord, for anyone here that may know you, Lord, but they... They haven't acknowledged 
or even it hasn't hit them, Lord, on the depths of their sin. It hasn't hit them on how much you've really saved them. Or maybe there's someone that's dwindle or uh, dabbling in their sins, Lord, and, and, and they're, they need your help. They need your hand, as we said in the beginning, to pull them out. Lord, we pray that they would grab that hand that's there, ever present. Lord, and we just thank you for all that you've done. And we just, uh, in Christ, in Jesus' name, amen. So before we play our last song,